0: Merciful Father, just as the prophets looked with hope for the coming of the Promised One, we also anticipate His coming in our midst today, preparing us for the day when we will see face to face in Your eternal kingdom. Lord, be patient with us when faith doesn't come easily. Forgive us for our unbelief. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, many of you know that I have a small collection of icons in my home and my office, painted images of Christian saints and biblical scenes. They're really kind of a family album of the Christian church, a reminder of those who have gone before us, uh, those people whose lives and stories should shape our own. We need these reminders. The scripture provides the same kind of reminder. Two Christmases ago, a friend, a priest friend gave me an icon as a present. It, it form, came in the form of a diptych. A diptych is two wooden panels that are hinged together with two different stories told on each panel. Each side of the diptych portrays some biblical story. In this case, on one side of the diptych is a portrait of Jesus. On the other side is a picture of John the Baptist. Both are being portrayed as preachers, but John's figure is something of a throwback. John is portrayed as a fiery prophet of old, Declaring God's impending judgment, asking people to repent and prepare for the coming of the Lord. Whereas Jesus sits graciously, calmly, and serenely teaching the gospel of peace. Side by side, these two pictures in the diptych are communicating the dramatic Differences and similarities between these two men and their two stories. The first chapter of the Gospel of Luke also forms a diptych. Side by side, we're given comparison of two different angelic annunciations, two different responses to that angelic annunciation, and then two miraculous births. But miraculous births are par for the course in Scripture. We have many women who are given children in old age in fulfillment of the promise. And so these two stories, side by side, also convey something of a transition from old to new. God is doing something dramatically different in the birth of Jesus. Something he hasn't done before. The account of Elizabeth is really on the pattern of Old Testament scripture. It's reminiscent of all those Old Testament stories, some of which we've read in the last few weeks, the story of Sarah and the story of Hannah, these post-menopausal women who are miraculously given sons in fulfillment of God's promise. The son that comes to Elizabeth is a dinosaur. He's a relic. John the Baptist is a prophet after the pattern of Elijah. He's in the old school. Even the setting of this story takes place in, a, in a, a context that makes us look backwards. This angelic visitation occurs where you think it should. In the holy city of Jerusalem, in the temple, in the holy of holies. This is where you expect to meet angels. The story then stands as a hinge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, beginning, as you would expect, with an elderly male priest in the holy city, in the holy temple, in the holy of holies, but then gradually moving our attention from the first panel to the second panel, a backwater village in Nazareth, and a couple of women who suddenly become the mouthpiece of God. The story begins with Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, this clergy couple who are descendants of Aaron, the priestly tribe of Israel. And they're given what might be one of the highest compliments of scripture. Luke says both of them were upright in the eyes of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Now Luke finds it necessary to say this because everyone else thinks something different about Elizabeth and Zechariah. Publicly, they have a different reputation. Even though Zechariah is a priest, even though they're descendants of Aaron, they both live publicly with a curse of unbearable shame because Elizabeth... In her old age is barren. She has been unable to provide a child to carry on the family name. And now she has long passed childbearing years. They've given up hope. We have to appreciate that in Jewish culture, childbearing was a kind of immortality. This is how you pass down your name and your values. In the, in, the, in the memory and the heritage of your children. And most people in this culture consider childlessness to be a sure sign of God's displeasure. To be cut off without an heir is a sign of judgment because it means the end of your reputation, the end of your values, and the end of your name. And so by first century Jewish standards, What Luke records here is a contradiction in terms. Here is this barren couple, cursed by God, who are upright before God and blameless in keeping the law. This priestly couple had likely endured decades of public humiliation and dishonor. People of their village probably talked in hushed tones behind their backs about what secret sin this couple must be harboring, because their judgment was evident. God had refused to answer their prayers in providing a child. And the older they got, the worse the condemnation, and hope disappears. Family and friends probably treated Elizabeth and Zechariah with a kind of polite spiritual superiority. And yet, for some 50 to 60 years, this righteous couple heard nothing from God. Not a sign that God would ever lift their humiliation or that he even cared to. Now, temple priests did not live in Jerusalem usually, they came to Jerusalem once a year to minister in the temple for two weeks at a time. And their primary duty during those two weeks was to offer the morning and evening sacrifice, the incense offering in the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary. A single priest would be chosen to perform the duty by casting lots. And since there are about 18,000 priests, this special duty would be permitted only once in a lifetime. And so as the story goes, the lot falls on Zechariah. He's chosen on this particular day to go into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice of incense and offer prayer on behalf of the people of Israel. As Zechariah knelt before the altar of incense, offering up this liturgy of prayers, An angel appears on the right side of the altar next to the menorah, the golden lampstand. Luke tells us that Zechariah is terrified at the presence of this angelic being. And so the first words out of the angel's mouth, fear not, which is, by the way, the most repeated command of the Bible. But it's also usually the first word that comes out of the mouth of any angel, And for good reason. Biblical angels are not warm and cuddly cherubs. They're not Casper the friendly ghosts. Every time angels appear in scripture, they evoke terror because they reflect in some small way the majesty and glory of God. This angel then speaks to this terrified priest and assures him, do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son whom you are to call John, which means Yahweh gives grace. Which raises an interesting question. What is it that Zechariah is praying for? At first glance, you might think that he's entered into the Holy of Holies and he's used this special time to pray for a son. But notice his disbelief when the angel tells him that he's going to have a son. Zechariah has given up hope that God would answer that prayer. And he finds the thought of bearing a child at this age to be ludicrous. Even though the Old Testament scriptures are filled with these kinds of stories, people always think, not me. Within this Holy of Holies, Within this sacred place, it would have been ludicrous, it would have been sacrilegious for Zechariah to bring his shopping list of personal prayers. His job as a priest was to offer a litany on behalf of Israel. He's praying for the people. Zechariah is asking God to fulfill his promises to his people to bring a Messiah in the line of David. To bring a savior. And God's answer to Israel's need is to give a son to Zechariah and Elizabeth. But I want you to notice that the blessing is nothing like Zechariah and Elizabeth expected. They wanted a child, yes. But the blessing of a child, the point of a child, is that so the family name and heritage would continue that it would go on for generations. A firstborn son carries the family name, carries on the family business, and the angel has already determined that the son will do neither, that he will not carry on the vocation of Zechariah, that he will not carry on the family name of Elizabeth and Zechariah. In fact, the son will be called John. No one in the family is named John. No family name is given. And his vocation is not as a priest. In fact, it's not going to be a typical job at all. John is going to be a recluse, a wilderness preacher, set apart by a Nazarite vow to abstain from any form of grape or wine, and presumably to never cut his hair or his beard. So John is the crazy guy on the street corner, with the sign that says the end is near. This is not exactly what you long for for your children. So John will not only carry the family name, but he will stand in the shadow of someone else. And eventually his fate is to be martyred without children. And so Elizabeth and Zechariah will not even get grandchildren in this deal. In other words, the angel says you'll be given a son but that son belongs to God and as soon as God gives that son to you you'll be asked to relinquish your claim on him. This is not for the fulfillment of the private hopes and dreams of Zechariah and Elizabeth. This child is sent to fulfill the hopes of Israel and the hopes of the world. And so this is the hinge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. John's coming heralds a new covenant, a covenant that doesn't look to physical progeny, to children or grandchildren, or to human priesthood as a means of covenant blessing. But this instead speaks of God's radical new ways of working in this new covenant Blessing comes now not merely for the married, not merely for those with children. Now God's blessing is available to the childless, to the widow. This new life comes not through physical birth or inheritance, but in spiritual birth and the inheritance of the kingdom of God. The birth of John the Baptist heralds the certainty of blessing for all those who were previously excluded, the widow, the childless, the eunuch, Gentiles, and women. This is a gospel for the outsider, for the marginalized. This is good news for oddballs and misfits. And most of us would give anything, we think, for an angelic visitation. We think that such an experience would clinch all of our doubts once and for all. This first panel of the diptych is precisely what we would expect, an angelic visitation to a gray-bearded man, a priest, in the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Jerusalem. This is where angelic visitations are supposed to happen, but it marks a transition in the ways that God works in the world, in God's way of doing things. Because Zechariah is in many respects the last of his kind. In many ways he represents the limitations of the old pattern. Because here is a male Jewish priest visited by an angel in the sanctuary, incense swirling around him, the people singing outside. And his response is disbelief. I don't believe it. How can I be sure of this? Well, the angel seems flabbergasted. (laughs) What, you don't believe me? Listen, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. I speak with his authority. Because you refuse to believe me, you will be unable to speak until this child is born. So Zechariah is struck dumb, which is a problem if you're a priest. When he exits the Holy of Holies, he's unable to complete his priestly duties. Having represented the people before God, his responsibility is now to represent God to the people. And upon exiting the sanctuary, he's supposed to pronounce a benediction on the people waiting outside. But he comes out silent. And without being able to offer a blessing, he returns home to his wife, Elizabeth. And acting on faith, Elizabeth becomes pregnant. So the focus of the scene is now shifting to the second panel. All through the Old Testament, through various childbirth stories, women stand stage left. They remain largely in the shadow of their husbands. Much as with the curse to Eve, your desire shall be to your husband, and he will rule over you. And yet God continues to draw these women out, out onto the stage, out into the spotlight, showing favor to women like Sarah and Hannah and Ruth. And now Elizabeth declares, God has shown his favor to me and has taken away my disgrace from the people. And so in today's story, Zechariah is the one who gets marginalized. And women take center, straight, center stage. Faith is not found in this priest. Faith is found in these two women, cousins, Elizabeth and Mary. And when Mary comes to visit, both women begin to shout God's praises. The house is filled with women's voices, and poor Zechariah can say nothing. Notice the contrast between the two panels in Luke's diptych. Mute, Zechariah, the priest, cannot pronounce the priestly benediction. What was once a man's job. And now these two women are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they become the mouthpiece of God. And who can blame them for singing God's blessing Because the ancient promise that salvation would come through the seed of woman is now gestating in the wombs of both of these ladies. One a senior citizen and the other a teenage virgin. The child in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy because the child in Mary's womb will crush the head of the serpent. The curse and the shame that once came upon woman is soon to be lifted, and as women will be saved through the childbirth. Elizabeth praises Mary for believing God even when her own husband couldn't. How blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has promised. And when the child is finally born to Elizabeth and the eighth day comes for him to be named and circumcised, Elizabeth takes center stage and declares with faith the fulfillment of the angel's promise. Everyone in the family assumes that since this is the day that Elizabeth and Zechariah's shame would be lifted, that they will surely name the child Zechariah. And so the ceremony begins, and the question is asked, What will you name him? And the family members begin to whisper, Zechariah. And this elderly couple must now acknowledge, in this show of remarkable faith, that the child who was given to them to lift their disgrace is ultimately not theirs but he belongs to God and God's people. The son that God had given to Elizabeth must be offered back to God. And so Elizabeth stands and says, no, he is to be called John. The people are totally dismayed. You don't have relatives with that name. Surely, if this son is to remove your disgrace, he has to carry on the family name. And in the end, of course, the neighbors expect, refuse to accept the word of a woman. And so they appeal to the mute father. Come on, what are you going to call the child? Zechariah asks for a writing tablet, and he writes with determination. His name is John. Don't argue with my wife. (laughs) With this, Elizabeth is vindicated, and her husband has come full circle. Nine months of silence will do that to you. (laughs) Now he affirms with confidence what he was told by the angel. The child has already been named by God the child has already been claimed by God and his destiny is determined by God. Zechariah and Elizabeth have to take the step of faith to relinquish their claim on John. They sacrifice their hopes and dreams to the larger plan of God and they submitted their desire for personal blessing to the blessing of the whole people of God. And as soon as John takes this step, he can now fulfill his priestly duty. After nearly a year of silence, he can offer a delayed benediction for God's people. But he has to add, he has to join his voice to the voices of women. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, because he has come to redeem his people. Zechariah has been moved from a person who thought that God's blessing could only come through the fulfillment of his personal hopes and dreams. And now he's become a person of faith, someone who understands that the details of our lives need to be submitted to God's larger plan. And so we Christians are a people who are defined not so much by the details of our lives, but by the larger story of redemption. Our faith is focused and shaped by this story. Our understanding of who God is is clarified by the way God acts in the gospel. Faith will be a struggle, a lifelong struggle for us if we expect that God act like a cosmic bellhop, if we see God as the divine vending machine, Distributing what we want at every turn. Meeting our personal demands. And responding to every expectation. But as people of faith. As maturing people of faith. We become people who are learning that individual blessing. Comes primarily through the larger story of redemption. And not merely in our private experiences. True joy comes Not when we get what we want, but when we get what we need. Zechariah and Elizabeth's blessing would be not in the sense that they would individually have a son to carry on the family name, but the fact that all of Israel would be blessed through the ministry of their son. That's how their disgrace is lifted. That's how our disgrace is lifted. So the two panels of this diptych in Luke chapter 1 are intended to unsettle us, to move us into a new way of thinking about where and how God works in the world. We may look for God in the holy places, in the sanctuary of the temple, in the holy city, among the priesthood, but where he might be found are in the back streets of a despicable urban rat hole like Nazareth. We might expect to hear God's voice through the priestly intonations of Zechariah. But the only voice that we can hear is the benediction of two women. Henri Nouwen reminds us that God's ways are not our ways. He says, through, the course, or through these two women, God has chosen to change the course of history. Now, this is not what we would expect. It might not even, even be what we want, but this is our only hope. God has indeed visited his people and has come to our rescue through the seed of woman. How blessed is she who believes that the Lord's promise will be fulfilled. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.